0: Remain standing for our epistle lesson and sermon text, one verse from the end of Romans 3. Give your ear to God's word. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. Rather, we uphold the law. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, God, help us to love your law more and to love Christ more than our sin. Help us to do that even now, working through your word, the word that you breathed out. And we ask for this for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. We recently read through C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe some of the younger kids I think that was their first time and in the land of Narnia, Lewis's Narnia, there's a law. It's ruled by law. And one of the laws, which is inscribed on the stone table, says that every traitor deserves the death penalty. Every act of disloyalty is punishable by death. This meant that the traitorous Edmund, who had betrayed, remember, his brother and sisters, deserved to die. Untrue Edmund must pay the ultimate price for his sin. And Narnia's evil white witch was more than willing to execute that, to put him to death in fulfillment of the law. She relished the thought, and of course, the law was on her side, In fact, if she had been denied the right to kill Edmund for his sin, the law would have been nullified, broken, and Narnia would be, quote, overturned and perish in water and fire, end quote. So Edmund was the witch's lawful prey. Of course, Edmund didn't die, which is why we we have a couple of boys running around here named Edmund. Edmund. But why didn't he die? Because when the witch laid claim to his life, Narnia's creator and savior, the great lion Aslan, offered to take Edmund's place. He offered to uphold the law by dying in Edmund's stead. Now, if you're reading the story for the first time, you don't know how it's going to turn out. You don't, you know, before Aslan offers to die on behalf of Edmund, you're wondering how it's going to end. How is there going to be a resolution to this thing? Is Edmund going to die? Or will the law be broken and Narnia sacrificed so that Edmund can live? Those seem to be the only options. It it looks as though there's no way to save Edmund without nullifying the law and thereby destroying Narnia. But Aslan comes up with a way. To uphold the law and to save Edmund at the same time. Of course, he knows a deeper law. He dies in Edmund's place. In today's text, Paul answers the objection that the gospel nullifies the law. And there were a couple different aspects to this objection that we're going to look at today. One is captured in the illustration I just gave. Paul understands why some might think that the gospel message of being declared righteous, justified by faith alone, appears to make the law null and void. After all, the law of Moses is clear that the wages of sin is death, eternal death. Every sinner deserves the death penalty. Every sinful act is punishable by eternal death in hell. In Romans 1, Paul says that every human knows this is true. Everyone is aware of God's eternal power and deity. Furthermore, everyone knows, as Paul says at the end of chapter one, that the law demands the death penalty for sinners. Look at the last verse on your handout of Romans one, verse 32. They, that is human beings, humanity, mankind, know God's righteous ordinance that those who practice such things, remember he just listed a ton of sins, he have been talking about the sin of homosexuality in particular. Those who practice such things deserve death. Sinners and sin deserve everlasting punishment, separation from God forever. This means you and I deserve to die. Untrue Jeremy must pay the ultimate price for his sin. You must pay for your sin with your life. The devil knows this righteous ordinance. He loves this law and he wants to see it fulfilled. He relishes the thought of having you in hell with him forever. As many as he can get. He wants this more than anything. That's his goal. And the law is on his side. The law is on his side. If your sins don't receive the death penalty, the law would be nullified, broken, and God's righteousness would be overturned. It looks as though there's no way for any human to be saved without nullifying God's law. But God has come up with a way to uphold the law and to save you at the same time. Jesus has died in your place. The law has been upheld. God's righteous wrath against sin has been meted out. And you have been saved from, by the propitiating blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 31, do we then nullify the law by this gospel? In other words, does does the gospel which says that a person is declared righteous by faith alone, apart from works of the law, does this gospel nullify the law? May it never be. May it never be that we nullify the law through faith. Rather, we uphold the law. The gospel upholds. The law it doesn't undermine it. It upholds it. And it, it upholds it in two ways, as the outline shows. First, if we've, as we've already considered, the gospel message upholds the law through Christ's perfect obedience, through his passive obedience in his death, and through his active obedience in his life. We'll talk about those words in a minute. Second, we'll see how the gospel message upholds the law through the believer's obedience though it be imperfect. The gospel isn't a license to sin. Rather, it calls us to faithfulness, to fruit bearing, to good works. The gospel upholds the commandments of God. So let's reflect first a little bit more on how the gospel upholds the law through Christ's perfect Obedience. Christ's obedience to the Father has two sides that theologians have called passive and active. The passive obedience of Christ refers to His submission to death. Paul says in Philippians 2.8, "...and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Why did the Father require this of the God-man? Why did Jesus need to die? And and what's more, why did God the Father send him specifically to a cross to die? Well, the answer to that question comes in one verse, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that answers the question why he had to die. Why on a cross? For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. It was in God's heart to redeem us from the curse of eternal damnation. How wonderful it is that God desired not to leave us in our sins, as he could have done without upsetting, disturbing the scales of justice. And how wonderful it is that the divine, this divine desire does not merely reside in the heart of God, but it, became, it also became a reality in time and in space and in our lives through the cross of Christ. You see, God redeemed us to his own hurt. Christ, the God-man sent by the Father, redeemed us from the curse of God's perfect and righteous law, from the curse of God's eternal wrath and he accomplished this for us by putting him to death by putting himself directly God the father put his son to death and the son put himself directly under the lightning bolt of God's eternal wrath because the law required it he received our death penalty Paul says in Romans 6 that the wages of sin Sin's due payment is death, but this teaching it doesn't originate with Paul. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where God told Adam, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Ezekiel 18, 4 puts it succinctly. The soul who sins shall die. When Adam and, Eve ate of the, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they died spiritually. Their perfect communion with God was severed. Their hearts were filled with darkness and dread. And the guilt and shame of their disobedience drove them into hiding. But at the same time, they also were receiving undeserved grace and mercy in that moment. The only reason Adam and Eve didn't die and go to hell immediately is that God had already decided before time began, Paul says, to send Jesus to die in their place. Knowing this, knowing this was going to happen because he determined it. He predetermined it. God had mercy on their souls. He did not kill them and send them to hell right away. Instead, he killed Animals in their stead, which points forward to the death of Jesus in their stead. The animals were killed to, in order to cover Adam and Eve's sin as well as their na- naked bodies. The animal substitutes were a sign and seal of Christ's future death on the cross. You see, the law demands death. Sinners deserve to die according to God's righteous ordinance. Suppose then that, suppose that God had decided to save them and us, his people, without satisfying the demands of his law. What if he had decided to extend us grace without executing the death penalty against us, on our sin, against our sin? In that case, he would have undermined his own righteousness, as Paul says in the previous verses. He would have, he would have nullified his high and holy law and the gospel that nullifies, a gospel that nullifies God's law is no gospel at all. God's wrath had to be poured out. The curse of the law, which is death, had to be inflicted. It had to be experienced, this curse, and endured by us or by someone in our place. If, if not, God's righteousness was on the line And would be overturned. That's why Paul says twice. Once in verse 25, you can look up and see, and then again in verse 26, which is the immediate context of this this passage that we're in now, this, this verse that we're looking at today. Twice in those two verses, Paul says that God sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice. Why? to demonstrate his righteousness. In other words, to prove his righteousness, to vindicate that he really is righteous. His law needed to be upheld. His righteousness needed to be demonstrated lest he forgive without fulfilling the law. One of the old commentators on Romans asks this rhetorical question, can there be any greater respect shown to the law than that when God determines to save men from its curse, the the law's curse, he makes his own son sustain its curse in their stead and fulfill for them all its demands. Can there be any more, any better display of respect for the law and upholding the law? God's son fulfilled all the demands of the law, not only in his death, but also in his life. And this is what reformed theologians call Christ's active obedience. Remember, the passive obedience of Christ refers to his submission to death on the cross to pay for our sins. And don't pour too much into that word passive. Of course, it was an active thing that he did. It's just two ways of talking about the the two sides of his obedience. But now we're talking about his active obedience, which describes his perfect keeping of the law's requirements, his complete fulfillment of God's law. You see, the, the law no, not only requires that a person die for his sin, it also requires that a person perfectly obey all the law's commands, precepts, principles, testimonies, rules, and implications in order to become righteous before God. Did you know that you had to do all of, those, all of God's law to be righteous before God? Only perfect law keepers get to spend eternity with God to become righteous in his presence. Even Adam needed to do everything God told him to do without sinning. His sin made him guilty it made him unrighteous his his sinless obedience would have made him righteous his sin also meant that all his descendants would be natural born sinners that's that's what we are natural born sinners the disobedience of adam doomed all of mankind each of us is born depraved and unable to be righteous every human being none of Adam's descendants would ever have been able to achieve the active righteousness that God requires and that Adam could have attained. Ever since Adam's sin, the requirement of perfect obedience has been unattainable for all mankind except for one, except for one member of mankind. The God-man Jesus Christ was born under the law and yet, and yet, the law did not crush him as it does us. He did what Adam and Israel and all of us failed to do. He obeyed every jot and tittle of God's law, every implication of God's law. He loved God and he loved others perfectly. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, Him who obeyed the law perfectly to be sin on our behalf on the cross so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So that verse, jot it down, 2 Corinthians 5.21 touches on both the active and the passive obedience of Christ. God made Him who knew no sin, active obedience, To be sin on our behalf, passive obedience, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might become righteous before God in him. And so in him we are perfect law keepers. In him we have experienced the death penalty. This is the biblical doctrine of justification in a nutshell in, in one verse. It's the foundation of our righteousness before God. Paul Paul also has another thing in mind when he says in verse 31 that the gospel upholds the law. So the law is not only upheld in Christ's active and passive obedience to the Father, it's also upheld through the believer's obedience, even though it's imperfect, far from perfect in fact. At the beginning and end of this letter to the Romans, Paul Calls believers to quote the obedience of faith. That's That's the phrase. It's the obedience that flows from saving faith. Without exception, without exception, a person who is saved, who is being saved, always demonstrates this salvation by his holiness. By the obedience of faith. Hebrews 12 says that without holiness, without this kind of obedience, no one will see God. Without holiness, no person will see God. If a person doesn't strive to live according to God's law, he's not born again. The Spirit never lives in a person without leading him to put off the old self and to put on the new. The Spirit drives those He inhabits toward godliness invariably, toward repentance and good works always, without exception. This is what Paul calls the obedience of faith in chapter 1 verse 5 and chapter 16 verse 26. The life of Of obedience generates joy, it fosters freedom, and it gives rise to rest. Now, we've been taught, we've been taught that by, you know, the the air we breathe teaches us uh, to think that true joy, true happiness, contentment, fulfillment comes when we've been liberated from the shackles of obedience to, to the law. Okay, the, the law constrains, limits, and when we we, we we break free of that and we do what we want sexually or whatever, and that's when you experience freedom and joy and all the rest. Happiness is doing what I want without having to answer to God. So you, you got to kill God to do that, and then and then you're happy. But Jesus says in John 15, 10 and 11, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full, fulfilled, filled up, overflowing. So do you want your joy to be full? Of course you do. Everyone wants their joy to be running over. It's, it's just built in. Jesus says that your joy becomes full when your obedience becomes full. That's what he says in John 15. If, if your joy tank is low, if it's empty or low, it's because your obedience tank is empty. When your obedience tank is full, your joy tank is full. Genuine joy cannot exist without genuine obedience. These things go together. The obedience of faith also fosters freedom. True freedom is not the ability to do what you want. Only being able to do what you want is actually bondage. Freedom is the ability to do what you ought. Animals do what they want. They're enslaved to their cravings. They, they can't break out of their base passions. You know this if, if you're around animals much. And, and last week, James and Sue learned this. They, they missed Sunday school because their cows got out into the orchard and started eating the forbidden fruit. But those cows were doing what they wanted to do. Not what they ought to do. I I tried to convince James that they weren't actually sinning, but I'm not sure he was convinced. And I I later heard that Josh and Anna had a similar problem. Cows that uh, saw that the trees were were, were good for food and pleasant to the eyes, right? Animals can't obey from the heart. And we we can train animals, right? But the beast of the field can't obey from the heart, as God commands us to do. They're, they're slaves to their base passions, so they're not free. And you'll, you'll never experience freedom until you begin to obey God from the heart, not just external, outward uh, conforming to god's law but from the heart second corinthians three seventeen says that where the spirit is there is freedom and in romans 8 bobby read this i didn't tell him to he didn't know i was gonna say this but paul says that the spirit we've received does not enslave it actually sets free and he says in that context it sets us free quote in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us that's our obedience that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us in our lives who walk us who walk in according not according to the flesh but according to the spirit that's how the law is fulfilled in you as you walk according to the spirit god's commandments don't enslave you they they keep you free that's how you experience your freedom Bob Dylan was right when he said, you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Serving God is liberating. Serving sin is enslaving. You see, while the Israelites were in in Egypt, uh, uh, while they were serving Pharaoh, they were in bondage. While serving Yahweh, they were free indeed. There's no greater freedom that you could ever experience than the freedom of being a slave to righteousness in Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6, starting in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that... When you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that through, sorry, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart, Paul says that, from your heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness then paul continues verse 19 i am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever increasing wickedness so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness when you were slaves to sin You are free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. So that freedom results in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, you see how being free and being a slave of God is the same thing? The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Romans six fifteen to 22. In addition to generating joy and fostering freedom, living in the obedience of faith gives rise to rest. Any life other than the obedience of faith life is complicated, exhausting, and futile in the end. David discovered this when he had to murder and lie in order to cover up his adultery. Life got very complicated and exhausting for him. His scheming was futile. Think about how simple life would be for you if your chief concern was obeying God in the very next moment. Every moment, your greatest concern, we could even say soul concern, that's how Spurgeon puts it in a quote I'm going to read to you in a minute. Every moment your greatest concern is to obey God in the next moment. And in that moment your greatest concern is to obey God in the next moment after that. Think of being able to go through life without having to worry about all the other things, the the thousands of cares that we burden ourselves with. With how to succeed or how to escape the hazards of your personal weaknesses. Imagine having no care in the world except obeying God in your next movement or in in your next sentence, your next thought. Doesn't that sound joyous and liberating and restful? It lifts a burden and it puts on the burden or the yoke That Christ puts on you his burden is easy his yoke his yoke is easy his burden is light that's because it's this if the obedience of faith was your central and primary concern you wouldn't have to fear failure because you'd know you're in God's will which is the definition of success if obedience was your sole concern, you wouldn't have to worry about going through life with little or no accomplishments, achievements, because you would be walking through life doing God's bidding every step of the way. You wouldn't have to make sure that your accomplishments were recognized by people, because your moment by moment obedience of faith would be recognized by the angels and, most important, by God who sees all and rewards faithfulness. Charles Spurgeon said, to believe in God and to do his bidding is a great escape from the hazards of personal weakness and folly. If we do as God commands and do not seem to succeed, it is no fault of ours. Failure itself would be success as long as we did not fail to obey. If we passed through life unrecognized, or were only acknowledged by a sneer from the worldly wise, and if this were regarded as a failure, it could be borne with equanimity. In other words, it, it, we could maintain our composure and our calmness as long as long as we knew that we had kept our faith towards God and our obedience to Him. Providence, Spurgeon says, is God's business obedience is ours whatever comes out of our life's course must remain with the lord to obey is our sole concern whatever harvest will come of our sowing we must leave with the lord of the harvest but we ourselves must look to the basket and the seed and scatter our handfuls in the furrows without fail we can win, well done, good and faithful servant. To be a successful servant is not in our power. And we shall not be held responsible for it. Our greatest risk is over, is over when we obey. God makes faith and obedience the way of safety. End quote. To be a successful servant is not in our power and we shall not be held responsible for it. This would be good for us reformed to remember as we try sometimes too hard to scheme and to produce and to plan for the kingdom of God. Imagine being free from the weights of life's heaviest burdens. Imagine the rest you would feel if obeying were your soul, your chief concern. Obedience rather than planning and engineering and striving and manipulating and posing and worrying and anticipating, maintaining an image and ensuring success. Obedience rather than pretending to be the master of your own fate. Obedience rather than so much battle planning. Imagine the joy of knowing that moment by moment you are doing exactly what God wants you to do. You'll experience joy, freedom, and rest in their fullness in the world to come, but they're available now through the obedience of faith. Spurgeon goes on to say that the life of faith and obedience is, quote, a life free from its heaviest cares. If we were in the midst of the wood, in the center of Africa, our pressing care would be to find our way out. But when we have nothing to do but to obey, our road is mapped out for us. Jesus says, follow me. And this makes our way plain and lifts from our shoulders a load of cares. When our only care is to obey, a thousand other cares take their flight. If we sin in order to succeed, we have sown the seeds of care and sorrow, and the reaping will be a grievous one. If we will forsake the path and try shortcuts, we shall have to do a deal uh, of wading through mire and slough, mud and marshes. We shall bespatter ourselves from head to foot. We shall be wearied to find our way, and all because we could not trust God and obey his bidding. Obedience may appear difficult, and it may bring with it sacrifice. But after all, it is the nearest and the best road. Her ways are, in the long run, the ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. End quote. That load of burdens that Spurgeon talks about is one that we can often bear instead of the yoke and the burden that Christ gives. And I know this, I've I've experienced, but I've also heard over the years, many folks, especially in our circles, talk about the, the burden that they feel in obeying God and doing his will. And we can can read blogs or we can go to conferences and come back feeling burdened rather than free if we don't get this point. So in, in summary, the gospel doesn't make the law null and void. God's law matters and the gospel message upholds it. It upholds the law. First, it upholds it by recognizing that the law requires perfect obedience. The gospel message recognizes it, acknowledges that law-breaking is so serious that it deserves the judgment of eternal death. The gospel message also affirms that righteousness before God can only be achieved through sinless obedience of the whole law, every jot and tittle, without sin, without fail. On this first point, the gospel message upholds the law by proclaiming the sinless life and atoning death of Jesus, the active and passive obedience of Christ on behalf of sinners that he imputes to us, that he gives to us, that he credits to our account. Thus, the law is upheld by Christ, even while sinners are saved. Second, the gospel message calls saved sinners to a life of obedience thereby upholding the law. Romans 8:4 God saved us through Christ's death so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. God's calling on your life Christian is to fulfill the righteous requirements of his law. By living according to the Spirit, by keeping in step with the Spirit rather than walking in the flesh. It's, you do this by producing the fruit of the Spirit rather than the deeds of the flesh. He's calling you to forgive freely, to bless your enemies, to give generously, to love deeply, to purify your thoughts and your actions, to relinquish control, to tame your tongue, to sacrifice your time, to repent of bitterness. To forget about yourself, to be less ambitious, to speak kind words, to serve others more, to think about the interests of others more, to recklessly abandon your worldly cares in pursuit of God, to live joyfully, to be free, and to rest. The path to happiness and fulfillment, which everybody here desperately wants more than anything, is the path. Of obedience. There's no other path. No alternate route. On, on Google Maps. Right? The alternate route. There's, there's none of that. And you need grace to stay on this path. If you want to keep the faith. And, if, and obey every moment. If you want to experience this kind of joy and freedom and rest you'll need to be watchful and prayerful careless believers will invariably wander off the path you'll need to stay close to god you'll need to keep your eyes off yourself and on jesus and when you fail and you will i will you will you mustn't, give an, you mustn't give up in despair and, and sink into self-loathing. You must repent and look to the promises of God, which is the source of your ability to obey. I'm gonna close with one more quote from Spurgeon. Whenever you fail in any respect in your lives, do not sit down and question the goodness of God and the power of the Holy Ghost. That is not the way to increase the stream of obedience, but to diminish the source of it. Believe more instead of less. Try by God's grace to believe more in the pardon of sin, more in the renovation of the Holy Spirit, more in the everlasting covenant, more in the love that had no beginning and will never, never cease. Your hope does not lie in rushing into the darkness of doubt, but in returning repentantly into the still clearer light of a steadier faith. May you be helped to do so. And may we, all of us, and the whole multitude of the Lord's redeemed by faith go on to obey our Lord in all things. I leave this word with you, Spurgeon says. Remember, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Have faith in God and then obey, obey, obey. Obey and keep on obeying until the Lord shall call you home. Obey on earth and then you will have learned to obey in heaven. Obedience is the rehearsal of eternal bliss. Practice by obedience now the song which you will sing forever in glory. God, grant his grace to us. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we do pray that you would grant your grace to us, the grace to obey. Give us the obedience of faith, just as you have given us the faith that saves. We ask for it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.